We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome back to the podcast, We Saved You a Seat. I'm your host, Tamara Crabtree, and I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Jason Asher. As Oklahoma Family Network continues to focus this month on childhood cancer awareness, my conversation today with Jason will touch you deeply as we get to know his beautiful daughter, Mackenzie. Jason and I had a meaningful conversation, which will be released in two parts. And I thank you for listening in now to part one, as we seek to bring awareness, conversation, and education to just a few pieces of the childhood cancer journey and how it impacts families in Oklahoma. I know you don't know me at all. <laughs> it's all right. I feel like I know you, though, just because we have yeah. so many people, um, mutual friends that that have just shared your story. You know, you're just part of our community here. In oh, Atlanta. thank you. So, That's nice. Yeah. I mean, it is a tight community, isn't it? It really is. I, you know, I think I told somebody that I don't know if this is, was the right thing to say or not, but, you know, if if you have a child where the, the most unfortunate thing happens, like the diagnosis of cancer, this is a really good city to be in. I mean, with the care that we provide, the community that we have, the nonprofits that are here to help. I mean, this is a, you know, like a lot of parents in my situation, we're thrown into a world suddenly where we don't, we don't really know what, what we're into. I mean, we, we were very unfamiliar and, and uh, we were embraced right off the bat. I love knowing that about, you know, our community, our state and the resources that we have available. I mean, it's, right. that's just, that just says a lot about who we are as Oklahomans and I work with a lot of people, just some really amazing people that have educated me a little bit, you know, but I certainly don't have the experience that you guys have. So, so Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, your family? And I know that um, you've been through a lot, but let's just start out by talking about your family. Yeah. So um, I'm Jason Asher. I uh, grew up in Tulsa, live in Oklahoma City now. Um, I'm married to the most wonderful spouse in the world, Nicole Asher, call her Nikki. She's uh, was born and raised in Kansas City. My family actually lives in Kansas City, so I was up visiting one time, and and uh, one thing led to another. We we connected, and I was like, "That's the that's the girl right there. That's the one." So very happily married. We have um, uh, we have four kids all together, and you heard that pause because that's always one of the most difficult things to to really answer is how many kids you have. We we always will say four. Um, we have three boys, uh, Dylan, who's 22 years old. We've got Jackson, who is 16, and our youngest is Connor, who's 12. Um, and then, of course, Mackenzie, she passed away when she was uh, 11 and a half years old back in December of 2017. So Mackenzie, you mentioned her. And um, so you've got your three boys still yeah. with you. And then Mackenzie is no longer with you guys. I know that you've already mentioned that childhood cancer is been part of your life and with her, why don't you walk us through just a little bit of her diagnosis, maybe a little bit of that journey, if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, she was um, born premature. And so she had a, um, a surfactant deficiency, which is um, kind of the lubrication for your lungs so that they can easily inflate and deflate. Right. 
without that, it makes it de- very difficult to breathe and, and, and really can cause problems for a newborn. So she has to ha- she immediately had to have this surfactant put in to allow her lungs. So she was born about a month early. She spent a couple of weeks in the NICU. And, you know, we just had this odd sense that she was a fighter, right? I just, you know, I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I just felt like, you know, even as a week old baby, a few days old, up to two weeks old when she was released, that, you know, she was fighting for every breath and she was going to make it, you know. So that was always kind of our theme with her is that, you know, we knew she was a fighter and we knew that whatever she really put her mind to, she would accomplish. And so, you know, fast forward, this was May of 2016. My wife had taken a trip up to Kansas City with the kids. Um, I was uh, in, a, in a work project. During that time, she had texted me a couple of times and, and Nikki had said she wasn't feeling very good. And Mackenzie had reached out and just kind of lethargic, nothing really that would stand out, no fever, no cough, no, no nausea, body. just felt really tired. This was on a Wednesday and she had camp on Thursday. It was a once a week camp. And we talked about whether she should go, you know, is it's okay. And I kind of said, you know, encourage her, maybe you go and get outside and you'll feel better. And, and so about an hour into it, she called me and she said, I, I feel terrible. And I said, I'll come get you. And she was at the nature reserve off Memorial road. I think that's like Memorial and is that Rockwell? I think there's a little nature reserve over there. I went out and picked her up. She was in the sunlight and she looked yellow. And I instantly knew that was jaundice, right? And so it alarmed me a little bit, but I'm generally not really a worrier. And so took her home, called the call her pediatrician, say, I think she's jaundice. And I said, that's a medical emergency and you need to take her in. You know, I look back at this so many times. I I think ultimately it wouldn't really have mattered, but I kind of said, oh, she's okay. Surely that's not a medical. Let me talk to the doctor, you know? And so doctor came on and we know him very well. His name is John Stecklow. He's very, one of the best pediatricians I've, we've ever had for sure. And we still continue to take our children there. He's, I can't say enough about him, but um, he called and I remember him saying, I need you at my office at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Not 801, not 802, but 8 a.m. And the way he said it, very frank, it kind of startled me a little bit. So we went to bed, went to the appointment. He checked her out, couldn't find anything and said, you need to go to lab. We'll do a lab, some lab work. And so we were at the lab about 9.15 or so, drew blood and went home. And we're just kind of waiting for the phone call. And um, that afternoon, about it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Dr. Seclo called and, and said, you know, listen, um, she's she's got leukemia blast. And I'm what's leukemia blast? And, you know, she's got leukemia cells in, in her blood. And, you know, we we I can't confirm the diagnosis, but you need to take her in right now and you're going to be admitted to the hospital. And this could be a couple, three weeks, you know, in the hospital. And I thought, oh, three weeks, what are we going to do for three weeks? You know, oh my gosh, my daughter, how's it, you know, what does this all mean? And this was on a Friday. And so we had a very painful weekend of worrying and she was asking a lot of questions. Why am I here? And we were very gentle about it, you know, and she caught wind of something and she said, do I have cancer? And I said, I don't know. You know, we don't know yet. And then on Tuesday, they came to us and identified that it was a, uh, a subset of leukemia called acute myeloid leukemia, AML. And so that was on our research that weekend, the nervous Googling and all the kind of stuff, you know, I knew a little bit about leukemia, but not a lot. And unfortunately, that was one that we had identified that 
if we if we had if we had to have leukemia, which one would we not have? And unfortunately, that was that was one of the ones we identified. And then she even had a subset from that was which was even one of the worst subsets as well. So we knew instantly she was in for a pretty tough fight. But you know, as I said from the beginning, we thought she was a fighter, and and she was. She turned out she was a remarkable fighter. Remind us how old she was at this time. So she was. Her birthday was May 6th and she was diagnosed on June 10th. So she was just about like, you know, 10 years and one month. Yeah. Devastating. Old enough to know that things aren't, yeah, I'm not feeling good. Things aren't right. I'm hearing things. I know enough. I don't know enough. That's right. Yeah. And she's a smart kid, you know, and a lot of parents say that, but she was real common sense savvy. Right. I mean, she just she just knew, you know, uh, she could read between the lines and kind of understand things. So it didn't surprise me very quickly. She she picked it up. But, you know, when the diagnosis happened, they have a uh, a great service at the hospital that walks children through and how to talk to them about it. And we utilize that. And and, you know, we pulled our sleeves up and we said, OK, what's next? And we're ready to fight. We're ready to go. I know that one of the conversations that we have a lot um, for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is the medications and what the medications do to the bodies of, you know, of the children and some of the side effects. Can you maybe just educate us on maybe some of that, some of those experiences that Mackenzie had while she was on these really potent and very strong drugs? Well, if you think about chemotherapy, you know, and what cancer really is, is it, it's a, in, in probably a very oversimplified term, but it's a deformed cell. And those cells can start dividing and dividing and they create a multitude of deformed cells. And then sometimes that's a all collected mass, which is a solid tumor. And then sometimes those cells are created in the bone marrow and they're released into the blood. And so that cancer becomes throughout your whole system, right? When, when you deal with with chemotherapy drugs, you're ultimately trying to create a drug that will only kill the bad and not kill the good, right? But unfortunately, we're just not there. We have we have medications out there that are, as we move forward and in, in, in you know the pharmacological you know advances, I think that we are seeing some uh, some some breakthroughs on really being able to pinpoint cancers. But right now we're just not there. We're much further than we used to be. So those the the, the therapies themselves are really go and and create havoc in your system. And you know there's a lot of the uh, more common ones that you've probably seen. You know baldness is one of the ones that really we instantly thought of. I know when we first got admitted to the hospital that same evening, we went up to the tenth floor. That's the pediatric cancer floor. And when we got out, we had seen a, a nurse wheelchairing a little girl that was bald and pretty frail and kind of pale. And that's when it really hit us, like she may be facing these similar things. And so, you know, we did the baldness, the losing the weight, the loss of appetite, the overall body pain was very common. Mouth sores are very common because of, you know, some of these medicines attack mucus and it can dry out your mouth and dry out your gut a little bit, and it creates kind of abrasions on there. And then on compound, it also really influences your immune cells, right? And so those little, you know, what may just be a a mouth sore to us kind of evolves into a very swollen, almost an abscess, and can be extremely painful. And that's just an indication of the immunosuppressant, you know, uh, part of these drugs. 
Um, one of the things that really hit us right from the beginning is one of her first drugs were was going to sterilize her. And, you know, there's so many moments in the beginning of this journey that really just shook me to the core that what we were facing, and that was one of them, that, you know, how do we tell her that she will be barren and she will never be able to have children, right? Is that something we need to talk about? And, you know, it, it, it wasn't so much the discussion, which we ended up not having anyway, but it's just the reality that these are serious medications that cause a lot of havoc and you, we have to be prepared for that. She lost her hair by about a week after her first dose, it was falling out to a level where it would, it would kind of, and when she sleep, she'd wake up and it'd be all over her face and she'd have it in her mouth and, and so it became a time where we had to shave her head. And that was a very emotional moment for, for all of us. You know, I actually, she actually wanted a little privacy. So she, um, she didn't do it in front of me. She did it in front of her mom. And, and um, on my hair, the lady that cut my hair, she's been doing it for 20 years. I asked her for come, to come down and participate in it. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a tough moment for her. You have got me all emotional, even now. I mean, just listening to you talk about her and, um, and the experiences that, that you guys had together as a family. It's a hard story. It probably taken me many years to be able to sit here and talk about it without breaking down multiple times. And I can't promise you that I won't during this, this podcast, but, um, you know, I really try to focus on what she meant to people and, you know, just the idea of, of being able to fight and what it means to live and what it means to love and, you know, told you it might happen. Um, but she really taught us a lot of lessons that that we we just didn't ever have in the cards. You know, that moment of diagnosis when he said two to three weeks in the hospital, I'm like, what are we going to do for three weeks? You know, and it turned out she was in the hospital for about nine months. Yeah. And um, so it's just, there. you know, kids are so resilient. This isn't just McKenzie. We deal with a lot of pediatric kids and what we do with our charity. And, you know, Somebody told us at the very beginning that, you know, kids with cancer, something happens and they just become so giving and lovable. And, you know, um, they have this ability to calm others down. And it was just became like, who's really the teacher here? and Who's the student? You know, and I think as I look back, Mackenzie taught me more than I ever taught her. And I will say that kids that are suffering, and it's not, I don't think it's just cancer, kids that are suffering that life-threatening diseases, I don't know. There's just something about them that just, you know, they are really, really special. They really are. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up that you guys were there for about nine months. That's something a parent just cannot even imagine. Nine months in the hospital. Walk yeah. us through some of that too. Initially, it wasn't nine months straight. I think the first time we in, we were there, it was about four months or so. And then we would get a little reprieve, maybe a week or so and come back or a couple of weeks home and come back. But, you know, the, these drugs, you know, the, the physicians and the, you know, the, the creators of these medications and the doctors that prescribe them, the pharmacies that, you know, um, uh, you know, give them to patients you know, 
they're 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 designed in a way that where you kind of have to go through a cycle, right? We can't just continue to do this because it will be very damaging to your body to where now you question whether the drug is is worth it, right? And it, you have to have a little bit of a balance here. So the more serious the disease, the more serious we can tolerate side effects, right? And that's just the way it goes, right? If you know, just if you had a nasal decongestant, right, and it caused you know, hair loss and, and mouth sore, no one would do that, right? It's just not in, you know, forgive me for those sufferers of nasal decongestion. I might be getting yelled at right now that it's a serious disease. And I'm not saying it's not, but, you know, those are kind of the diseases where we expect minimal side effects, right? Well, these aren't, these are different, right? It's like epilepsy, epilepsy drugs have a lot of warts to them, right? And so this is the same way. And so you, you go on a cycle and, I, I may be a little rusty, so any physicians or medical people out there listening, please forgive me. But as I remember it, it was about a month cycle or so, maybe six weeks. And then you'd get a couple weeks off, right, as your body tried to repair itself. And then you'd start again. And depending on how hard that cycle hits you and how you were doing during your recovery would determine whether you can take a little reprieve and go home or whether you need to stay in the hospital. And she she really had some difficulty at times, right, where we ended up having to stay um, in the hospital rather than getting those little breaks uh, that we could go home to. And and so, you know, I think that extended it a lot, right, that it just how your body responds. You know, they look at your white cell count to see how much your immune system is recovering after these drugs because it, you know, they can measure that. And basically at the end of these cycles, it's almost zero. You have no immune system, right? And so they measure how fast and there's a marker. They look at, okay, once you're at this threshold, we think you can set to go. But if the child doesn't get there fast enough, they need to stay, right? And then it may be time she may rapidly recover and there wasn't really time to go home anyway. And we're going to start the next cycle, right? So it's a really, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And so we had to stay there quite a while for some of that kind of stuff. The next side of it too, is that, you know, if they kind of get a sense that the drugs aren't necessarily the knockout punch that you would want, right? The next phase of, of treatment, along with the continued oncology drugs, is what they call a transplant, right? And it is a bone marrow transplant. And part of that process is they, they bring your immune system down purposely to zero, because when they put these new cells in you, they don't want your immune system to attack and kill them. So it's basically they wipe out her bone marrow to where it's hardly anything. They in they give her bone marrow right in the bloodstream and it finds a way to work back inside to the bone. And you hope those cells multiply and multiply and all the cancer cells are dead. All those new cells will take and, and everything else. And that's a very lengthy procedure too, because of no immune cells means any little thing happens. And some of the side effects that come along with that, if your body doesn't have an immune system to fight that off, there extends the stay in the hospital. And so, um, and even with that procedure, there's a lot of side effects that go with that too, right? And so these stays can be very extended and really it just depends on how the patient reacts. This isn't probably the best example, but our kids never slept very well. 
they just never did, you know, and it would always drive us nuts when we'd hear another family that had a newborn and yeah, we, we put the child to bed at 7 PM and wakes up at 8 AM the next morning. And we are like, what in the world? You know, we're, we're up all night. We party all night and sleep all day at our house. You know, that's what our kids did. And so again, it was just one of those, it's similar to that, Like right? Some kids just very well respond to this stuff and they can get out of the hospital and, and, and some kids don't. And, and a lot of that is just genetic factors. Um, the, the virulency of the cancer and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we, we ended up having to stay a while. Yeah. It was nine months out of her. She was, she had cancer for about a year and a half. So out of 18 months, about nine of it was in um, the hospital. So you spoke of the bone marrow transplant. Um, did McKenzie experience that? And then how did you go about finding the match? Yeah, it's a, this is another, a, a sad story, I think, you know, um, the, the Oklahoma Blood Institute is a local organization, Oklahoma Blood Institute. I, I think it's just the chapter here. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I think there's other blood institutes across the country, but um, they uh, are the ones that really collect bone marrow from donors. And, and the way the procedure worked back then is that you would just do a cotton swab if you wanted to volunteer. They You sent the cotton swab in, they would capture your DNA and they'd put a profile in the computer. And they'd have this massive database, right? And so if anybody across the nation needed a, a bone marrow transplant, well, those markers they found in your DNA, they look at certain markers. And if you are a match with that particular candidate, then that, that donor would actually have a procedure themselves. So when we initially set up McKinsey's DNA and we put her markers, if you will, in the system, there's 10 markers they look at. And they really like people that match about eight, nine, and 10 would be perfect. So they put her in the system and they found one person in the registry, in the United States, that had a 10 out of 10 match. And of course, it's all blinded, right? All we knew was a female in North Carolina. That's all we knew. And we also knew that when she was notified, she agreed to go to the appointment the very next day at 8 a.m., which is a great sign rather than someone saying, let me think about it or whatever. She went in there, went, her, went, went to her appointment, and we were for two days just sweating bullets. And we received word that she changed her mind, decided she didn't want to be a donor. And so part of the donor process is that it is a procedure in which you are under general anesthesia. You, They put a, for all lack of terms, a needle in your hip, now you're under, and that's a great place to draw out bone marrow. They put it in your hip. They have a, a needle. They, they, in simplified terms, suck it out. And they collect it, pull the needle out, and you are sore that afternoon. And the next day, you may be a little sore, but very quickly, you're right back at it, right? So that inherently creates some risk, right? Is It is a general anesthetic. You know, some people hear the word needle and they're worried, you know, and what is that going to mean for me long-term? So far, the side effects for bone marrow donors are very little, very small, but with any procedure, with any general anesthesia, there's risk, right? And so Oklahoma Blood Institute, there's other organizations across the world, they have these bone marrow donor, it's like a blood donor program, you know, event, you know, you a blood drive, you know, this is a, it's a bone marrow drive and they'll have these events and they want you to swab your cheek and they put it in, they just put you in the system, right? You just collect there. And so sometimes these, these things are given in, you know, these drives are given in situations 
but there's a little peer pressure, right? So let's say you had it at your church in the fellowship hall. All everybody was around gathering, eating a meal, and they had a big drive. They tell the presentation what this is for. And one of your friends next to you says, oh, that sounds great. I'm going to do it. Are you going to do it? And you're like, well, I guess. I mean, everyone else is doing it. I suppose I should too. And you really haven't thought it really well out, right? Um, and then when your name's called, that's that moment of, oh, this is serious, right? And so that happens, unfortunately. People turn it down when it comes real. So let me back up to McKenzie's story. So the second thing that they do, if they don't find it national, they go to a global search. And there are countries around the world that are um, much better than even the United States in having bone marrow registries. And Germany is one of the best countries in the world that has a, a, a registry that's, that's, that's nationalized, right? And so a lot of countries really go to Germany because they have so many people willing to do it. Went to Germany, they did the, the international and lo and behold, it was a German person, right? Another female and um, 10 out of 10. And so we were jacked, right? And a couple of days later, we got the news that she had also declined. So now we're over two. And so now with the ideal match being an eight, nine or 10, remember a 10 point scale, now we have to back that up and say, well, what do we have? What's the best we can get? So they did me and I was a five. They did her brothers. They were all fives. And her mom was a six. And that was the closest they could get. So her mom selflessly went in there and uh, went through the procedure. And, um, you know, feedback was it really wasn't that bad. Right. And. We she got the the donor cells from her mother, and they were, and you know, put into McKenzie. It's just a really, it's kind of anticlimactic. We're thinking of this, you know, it's like going in for a, a, a kidney transplant. You think it's this big ordeal, and they walk in the room, and, and they've got a bag of material that's kind of grayish in color, and they hang it up, and they put it in her pick line. They, they do everything else. She's always getting blood and a bunch of stuff, and we're like, that's it, you know. That, there's not some big thing, you know, and anyway. And so once that happens, you know, again, as I said earlier, they bring the immune system down and, and it's really touch and go there for a while. You know, the, the, her, the body's reaction to that can be, you know, excellent, kills all the cancer, patient walks out all the way to there's been there's been instances where, where patients have died because of it. Right. And so but that's how serious the leukemia is. Right. If you don't treat leukemia there's only one outcome. And so we have to, we have to try to the best that we can. Um, but yeah, so, so we ended up, we ended up being advocates for bone marrow drives and, you know, we took a little bit of different angle. Maybe the OBI is going to be frustrated at me, but they do a great job. Their approach was really just a shotgun blast. Let's get a bunch of people involved, right. And bringing everybody there. But, you know, our personal experience just the thought of somebody signing up because they felt pressured to, or somebody signed up because everyone else is doing it. You know, it's a numbers game. You want more people in the registries, the more people you got, the better opportunity you have. But we would have, we did a couple of drives on our own and we were really, when we gave our presentation, we were very specific on what what's required and what this means. And if you sign up, you know, 
you can't break somebody's heart. Somebody's family, when they find out there's a an opportunity to possibly save the life of a child. And then if you back out, you've just compounded the problem. And so I tell you, there were times we had 30 or 40 people out. And at the end of our discussion, it was really in your face. We'd have about six or seven people walk up. And, you know, I don't know if that's a good strategy or not, but I really did feel those six or seven, if they got called, they were going to do it, right? So, you know, it it just, again, it, it almost, it, that's another example of this whole world you're thrown into the instant your child has a diagnosis like this. Like, we didn't know bone marrow transplant from the, you know, a Jason's Deli buffet salad. I mean, we did nothing, Right. And now all of a sudden, we, you know, we find ourselves six months after diagnosis, we're standing presenting a bone marrow, the benefits of bone marrow transplant. And so, you know, it was a, uh, it's a very interesting thing, but yeah, ultimately ask your question. Yeah. Mackenzie did go through the procedure. It's pretty rough. She had um, a lot of side effects, but she ultimately ended up coming through. And um, there was a time where we, we thought we were done, got the results back and she was no cancer to be found. And we thought everything was successful and, you know, and ultimately we've got some bad news. One, I can't even imagine feeling like, okay, we've, we've scored big, you know, we, we have these matches and we know these people signed up for it. So ultimately the vision is that these people are going to volunteer. They're going to help, they're going to help save the life of someone who's experiencing that. And so I, I have a deep appreciation for you educating the public for what you're signing up for. I think that that is, I think that's just key in making sure that the people who are going to match are going to be able to do it. Um, Okay. So you mentioned that she, she had no cancer showing up and ultimately she was, things were looking pretty good. And um, what, what happened? In the late spring, if I recall, when she got a test that showed no cancer, but she was still unhealthy enough to where she needed to recover from the chemo and all the trauma that her body had went through. And it was really a good time because she'd been taking some homeschool stuff that the the school district she was in had provided. Um, it, It was very minimal to kind of just keep her a little bit engaged, not really to you know, to go to the next grade by any stretch. And it, it was difficult, right, with with doing the school stuff inside the hospital. But as it turned out, the springtime turned out to be a really good time. So because it was as school was shutting down and closing for the summer. So really had all summer to kind of get back to normal, let her recover. And, you know, she wasn't herself. Um, mentally, she was. But physically, she was still a little tired and that kind of stuff, you know, and we gave her all the grace we, we could. If she didn't want to do anything for the day, my gosh, she'd been through so much to get to the point she was that we absolutely honored it. And I got to tell you, I don't think I said no to her for a year and a half. You know, it would, <laughs> I, I just, whatever she wanted, I was, you know, the, the, the father daughter relationship, you know, is, is such a, um, a beautiful thing that, it just made it even worse. I always, you know, my, I hope my three boys, you know, when they hear this, you know, I, I probably let her get away with it a little bit more than I did the boys, you know, um, because she would just be able to capture my heart in a way that, you know, just daddies and daughters, you know, it's a, it's, it's a thing, you know, it's a real thing. Yeah. So we went through the summer and we uh, enrolled her in school and she went back to school for her first time in a year and she went to a new school and, and uh, we were a little nervous about it. And, and, you know, I sat with her the first day and 
for the first, you know, I don't know, hour of the day. I was just a nervous wreck, just like she was. And, and then it was time to kind of let her go. And I felt it was like a kindergartner when you push your kindergartner to class the first time, you know, but I was really worried. And so she had went her first day and no complaints. And then within a few days, she started getting some friends and, and uh, their phone was ringing and she had this ability to make friends with anybody. And, and, um, you know, and she, she started to enjoy it. They had a, a dad volunteer opportunity at the school. So I went and volunteered at her school. I got to sit with her for the day and it was looking at some of the social interactions and she was doing great. Right. So she was about a month and a half into school. She was, she was also elected to student council for her class. Right. And, and so everybody kind of knew her story a little bit, you know, that she had cancer and, but, you know, I didn't seem to really interrupt her, her relationships with friends. And I think it was about mid-October that she went in for routine blood exams. This was from early spring to October. They came back and they found some, some more cells. Thank you for listening to part one of McKenzie's pediatric cancer journey. In part two, Jason continues to share more about their experiences as a family, some beautiful memories they made with McKenzie, and tells us more about the nonprofit they have established in McKenzie's name. We truly thank you for joining us today, and we thank you for helping spread awareness about childhood cancer by sharing McKenzie's story. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.